In Psalm 123, the psalmist says this. This can be our prayer this morning as well. The psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Father, we thank you for the assurance. Lord, as we've been reminded already over and over this morning that you are a good, good father. You're a father who desires relationship with us so much so that you sacrificed your son. He laid down his life. He did it willingly. He shed his blood so that we could be clean, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know you, so that we could fall at your feet and worship you here and not worry that we're going to be sent away because uh, we're unable to come into your presence. No, Jesus made it possible. And we thank you for him and for his sacrifice this morning. And so, Father, to you this morning, as this psalm says, we lift up our eyes. As a servant looks to his master, as a, a, a maidservant looks to her mistress, Father, just what the psalm says here, we look to you, and we know that your word assures us that as your children, we can come to you and we can look to you in any condition at all. Father, we can look to you in worship and adoration and praise. We can say what a great and a mighty and an awesome God you are. Father, we can, at the same time and, and, and with the same boldness, we can come before you with our needs and our, our sorrows and our heartaches and say, Lord, we just don't know what to do. But you do, and, and we know that as this psalm says, you will be gracious to us. Father, I pray that as we have gathered here with all that we've seen and heard and sung already, that, Father, that we would be at ease in your presence. Father, not, not casual, not flippant, not irreverent, but, but at ease knowing that we are children in the presence of a good, good Father who loves us and cares for us and, and much more than that has something to say to us. Father, this day as much as any other, we need it to be your spirit who speaks. You do it through the voice of a preacher, but it's not the preacher we need to see or to hear. We need you. And so as always, Lord, we know your spirit's here. We know your spirit's everywhere. We, we know the promise that when we gather in your name, you, you will, in fact, be among us. But we want you to know that you are welcome to have your way with us this morning. And we ask that, Lord, as, as Jesus promised your spirit would do, that he would be the one who comes and guides us in truth. The truth of your word, truth like no other. That, that your spirit would be the one to guard us from error and confusion and misunderstanding. Lord, we want things to be clear, as clear as possible here today. Father, we ask for your spirit, even with communion and a time of confession and reflection. Lord, if there's still stuff we carried in with us, we, we lay it down at your feet. We, we know that we can do that. We pray that by your power and your grace, we'd be able to. So that for the next few minutes, we just get to see Jesus. Lord, may we see him clearly this morning as we study your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, may we, may we be reassured and, and, and comforted, comforted and strengthened in, in his presence. Lord, knowing that he loved us enough to lay his life down for us. Father, take this time and, and use it as you see fit. That in the end, it's Jesus that we get to, to savor and, and see best. And it's in his name, his name, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're being seated, we'll, as always, dismiss for Children's Church. If you've got boys and girls who are five to our second graders, they can go make their way out now. I want you, as they're doing that, to get your Bible and turn in it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. 
Turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, and, I, and as you're turning there, I want to say two things that don't necessarily have much to do with the sermon, but, but just two things uh, just that I'm excited to share, or to mention to you. And, and one is, and I said this, I had this feeling in first service, just this sense that, that the Lord has just sort of orchestrated things as always for us in a beautiful way. And, and while I'm excited to, to share with you what we've got here in God's Word in Matthew 7 this morning, uh, I, I said, and I feel the same way in this service as I did in the first, that, uh, that I feel like between what the worship team has done and Ted and even Deanne's announcement and, and Scott through communion has done is they've carried the ball down the field and they've scored. I'm just here to spike the football. And that's what we're going to do with God's word this morning. We're going to celebrate uh, what we are going to look at. As you're making your way there, let me also say one of the things that was mentioned is, is uh, just in, in terms of the calendar and where we're going that, that uh, obviously Thanksgiving is this week. We sure hope you'll come out Wednesday night if you're in town. It's always a special time of sharing our praises together. Uh, but right around that, next Sunday is actually the first Sunday of Advent, which is kind of mind-boggling if you ask me. Um, but around here, we encourage families and, and individuals uh, to, to use the season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, to really worship together. Uh, it's a great time if your family doesn't already do some sort of family worship together. And, and like, like many of you, our family is hit and miss at that uh, at best sometimes. Uh, but it's a chance to really zero in and prepare our hearts for Christmas. And I just want to mention two ways you can do that, uh, individuals or families. One is every year I mention a book, a series of books that's been really influential and meaningful for our family, uh, the first of which is a book called Jotham's Journey. And it's really not for toddlers, it's kind of intense, but it's a great story, uh, sort of a historical fiction, but it leads us to the birth of Christ. And it's a great way just night after night to sit down and prepare your heart to, to worship and to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Another one our family discovered last year, and, and, and I haven't gotten a chance to mention this before, but it was dynamite. And I would encourage you, if you want to do something new, fresh for Advent this year, uh, there's a book by Ann Voskamp, many of you know that name, uh, and it is called Unwrapping, Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. And man, it was just dynamite for us. And, and even with the age range at our house and lots of boys, uh, things of that nature, it really did capture our attention and, and it was special. So just be thinking about as we enter into this season uh, and everything else you're planning, uh, plan to worship well uh, through these coming weeks. With that said, we are in Matthew 7 this morning, and, and we're going to read the passage in just a few minutes, but we are this morning at, if you've been with us, maybe you realize this, we are at the conclusion of this House of Prayer sermon series. Now, I said last week that that means we're just getting started. The sermon series has laid the foundation. The real work of becoming a House of Prayer is now uh, beginning and continuing, but this morning we try to draw together everything we've looked at over these past uh, many weeks weeks together. And if you've been with us, what I hope you remember, among the things I hope you remember, and if you've not, this is just sort of the, the flyover view of where we've been, is that in this sermon series, House of Prayer, over the past eight weeks, we've covered all kinds of ground. We started by, I started by sharing with you a definition, what I feel is a working definition of a house of prayer, which is this, that a house of prayer, which is what Jesus, remember, has called his people to be, a house of prayer is any gathering of believers, however great or small, wherever they meet on the face of the earth, who understand what prayer is, and so they do it. They pray because they believe in the reality and the promise and the power of what prayer does. I then offered you a very simple, the simplest definition of prayer I could come up with, which is simply that prayer is answering speech. Prayer is simply responding out loud, silently, uh, alone, or in the company of others to the God who has spoken to us 
first. Uh, From there, we talked about all sorts of different things, like the difference in prayer between seeking God's hand. That's bringing him our request, God, you've got stuff and I need it, and seeking God's face, which is worship and adoration, just just enjoying and praising and worshiping him for who he is. Uh, We then talked about how the best way, particularly when we are praying together, to begin praying is by giving God first word. We do that uh, by starting with an open what? An open Bible. We see, well, what's God say? Let's find out what's on his heart before we just begin to unload everything that might be on ours. Along the way, we discovered that Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. Not merely as something we can recite together once a week because we're in church, but as a way, a pattern to keep our focus, our concentration when we are conversing with God. Uh, We talked about how to take our prayers, as I termed it, to the next level through the words, so that, because we see in the Bible that essentially every time Jesus or one of the apostles prayed, there was always a so that, a reason behind the prayer or the request. And and last week, we explored some of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Why do we say that? What does it mean? What are we asking God to do? And of course, all these things have been considered in the context of praying together as the people of God. If you get nothing else out of this series, we have been called to pray together, and that's what we need to take hold of. That's why it's house, not life, of prayer. But let's be honest, that's a lot to absorb, It's a lot to process, it's a lot to think about, it's a lot to respond to, it's a lot to apply. Even just this week in our small group, last Wednesday night, as we were talking about many of these things together, it was noted, and essentially everyone in the room agreed, that that there's so much to sort of that we've been offered to keep track of, that, that it can sort of, when we go to prayer, tie us up in knots if we're not careful. Did I start the right way? Did I really give God first word? Did I follow the pattern? And, And I get it. I get it. There's so much here that we can apply, but at the same time get lost in the middle of thinking, am I doing it right? So this morning as we draw to a close, here's what I want to do. I want to circle around, again, here in Matthew chapter 7, to the fact that ultimately, and even with everything I've just very quickly reviewed and noted, ultimately what we need to know and remember about prayer is that it's a pretty simple thing. Prayer is really a pretty simple thing, and as the passage we're about to read here affirms, it is also, as Christians, an extraordinarily precious thing as well. Because here in Matthew 7, where we're jumping in, it's near the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' explanation, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You you say you've put your faith in him. You have put your faith in him. Jesus said, this is the, the pattern by which you are to live your life. That's where we're picking it up. And, and, and while it's earlier... In this very same message, in fact, just one chapter earlier, Matthew 6, that Jesus already spoke about prayer. That's where he gave us the Lord's Prayer. He said, when you pray, pray this way. The fact is that as he is drawing his message to a close, he comes around to prayer again. Now, in chapter 6, the reason Jesus spoke about prayer is he, as we saw, gave us words of, uh, of instruction. He instructed us how we are going or how we are called to pray. But the reason he comes back in chapter 7 to prayer again is now, having instructed us in the pattern and the priority of prayer, now he wants to invite us. 
Chapter 7 is an invitation to pray to God, to come before him, and to do so without fear, without worry, without hindrance, and without hesitation. He gives us an open invitation to talk with our Heavenly Father. And in verse 7, beginning in verse 7, down through verse 11, here's what the Lord Jesus said. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, One way for us that we could approach this passage this morning is I could simply sort of rehash and tell you what it says. I could tell you that in verse 7, Jesus gives us an instruction. In verse 8, he then gives us an assurance to back up the instruction. And then in verses 9, 10, and 11, he gives us some insight into the one with whom or to whom we are called to pray. If we had time, we could jump into verse 7 and and the very interesting statements Jesus makes there and ask ourselves and ponder when Jesus says, ask and seek and knock, are those three variations of the same command or are they three different intensities and approaches to prayer given the situation? And all of that would be very nice. And all of that would be helpful. It would give you things to write down, to take home, and someday maybe look at again. But that is not what we're going to do with these verses Because what sparked my curiosity, and that's what you're going to get this morning, what sparked my curiosity, you may be curious about other things, you're going to have to figure it out yourself. What sparked my curiosity in this passage is not nearly so much the question of what Jesus said, that's pretty clear. My question is, why did he say it? Why did he say it? Again, particularly when one chapter earlier, six or seven minutes earlier in the sermon, perhaps he already, again, talked so much about prayer. Why did Jesus say what he said here? And as I sort of pondered and and considered and let that question roll around, I drew some conclusions. You may draw other conclusions. These are the ones I drew. Jesus said what he said here. These are, by the way, not your three sermon points, but, but they lead to them, so we'll get there in a second. I think Jesus said what he said here for three reasons. First of all, and this is going to be a little bit blunt, but I think it's true, he said it because, number one, we don't pray much. Truth be told, we don't pray all that much. The second reason I think Jesus said what he said here is that many times, and again, understand, everything I'm saying, this is an us thing, this isn't a you thing, because I struggle with the very same things. The second reason I think Jesus said what he said here is even when we do pray, Many times when we take God our needs and burdens requests, we don't really think he's going to answer. We don't expect him to give us, certainly not a favorable answer. I mean, oftentimes we don't go into prayer in a spirit of faith. We go to prayer in a spirit of doubt or even disbelief. And then there are those times, and and believe me, this is true. Maybe not for all of us, but certainly for some of us. Sometimes we suspect, or what keeps us from going to prayer is because we suspect that while God loves us, we know that Jesus died for us, he doesn't really like us very much. That, that he's sort of, he's going to answer, it's going to be reluctant. And, and he gets kind of tired of our whining and our complaining and our faults and our failures and all our needs. And we buy this lie that he loves us, but 
may not like us. That may sound presumptuous to you. You may agree, you may disagree. But if you take another look with me at what Jesus said here, I think you'll see it's at least some of the reason why he said it. Because what I want to show you in these five verses are three, at least for our purposes, parting words about prayer. Three parting words Jesus gave us about prayer. Three things that it's really important, even with everything else we've heard, that we remember these two. And they are as follows, number one. The first thing Jesus tells us in these five verses is that in our lives, in our walk with Jesus, we must make prayer our first move. Make prayer, number one, your first move. Here again is what Jesus said. Follow along in your Bible. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, just a couple of minutes ago, I acknowledged the possibility, or at least raised the question, uh, that perhaps there are distinctions between what Jesus is saying here. That asking means one thing, seeking means another, and, and knocking means a third. And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't, and nobody really agrees for sure. But I know one thing all three of those instructions, those commands, have in common. They're all offered, or they are all done from a point of need. Why do we ask for stuff? We need stuff. Why do we seek for stuff? We need stuff. Why do, why do we have to knock as Jesus uses that metaphor here? Because we need stuff. They all express a lack or a want or, or a, a desire for help of some kind. Maybe you recall at the beginning of this series, one of the, this was a while ago, so maybe you don't recall, but if you do, or let me remind you, that one of the things we learned in the very first week of, of this study is that there are two enduring reasons that we're all called to pray. Number one, God is worthy. He's always worthy of our praise and our attention. He always will be. And the second reason we pray is because we're needy. Because we are needy people. And Jesus, in what he says here, is acknowledging that second reason. And his message is this. When you are in need, make prayer your first move. When you're in need, make prayer your first move. And since most of the time, listen, most of us need stuff, we should be praying a lot more than we normally do. Because we as people are always in need, and yet we don't. All too often, we don't. Now, sometimes we don't pray because of just there's sort of this innate, and we all have it, spirit of self-sufficiency. We look at our lives and say, there's some stuff, I can figure it out. It it came out, I'll work on it. Give me some time, I'll have a solution. I I can do it by myself. Sometimes we don't pray because we just don't think we need God's help with a, a certain circumstance or situation. But sometimes... We don't pray, and and again, this is harder to admit. It's because, as I said a moment ago, we don't actually expect an answer. I'm not going to pray about it. It's not like God's going to give me what I want. It's not like God's going to answer what I'm asking for. And well, I will confess, I'll be the first to confess, I've prayed with that attitude far too many times. I'm going to give it to God because that's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't really expect Him to do something about it. I have a lack of faith. You know, I have no idea where that, where, where that thought, where that notion comes from, especially given what Jesus just said here. Look again at verse 7 in your Bible. Jesus said this, ask, and it, what's the next word? Will be given to you. Seek, and you what? Will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Let me ask you a question. 
What more incentive do you need to pray? It will be given. It will be answered. It will be found. I didn't say it. Jesus did. He said, pray expecting God to answer. Now listen, I understand this is not a promise that God's answers will be immediate, that I open my eyes and lift my head and presto, there it is, the very thing I prayed for. In fact, the way Jesus said, spoke here, if you look at the original language that Jesus used, actually because he spoke in the present tense, it's really a call to persistent prayer. Literally, if if we were to read it as Jesus intended when he first said it, verse 7 says this, ask and keep on asking and you will receive. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. Actually, this is not a call. Jesus doesn't give us a call to make prayer our first move. He says make prayer your first, second, third, fourth, and 17th move. Pray and keep on praying. Whatever you do, Jesus said, don't not pray about it. Make prayer your first move, and in doing so, we've already begun to touch on this already, because verses 7 and 8 are a part of the same thought. The second parting word Jesus gives us about prayer, he says, number one, make prayer your first move, and in doing so, second, expect that God will answer. Expect that God will give you an answer. You know, when my brother and I were kids, we were just a, about a year and a half apart, and I'm thinking when we were 9, 10, 11 years old, it's kind of the age we fell in love with football. And, and ever, for a while, everything it was about watching football and following football and talking football, and that's never changed. I mean, it's only grown over the years. But somewhere along the line, I think it was one of my friends gave me the idea or told me that you could actually write, and so this is pre-internet, right? Okay, we actually had to write pen and ink letters, We could write to our favorite football teams, and they'd write back. I mean, it would be as simple as you could write on an envelope, Chicago Bears, Soldier Field, Chicago, Illinois, and they would write you back. And when we found that out, man, that was that was that was really cool. So we wrote our first letter out to one of the teams, just asking, just send us send us something in return. And a couple of weeks later, in our box was our mailbox was a white eight and a half by eleven envelope, the team logo. I don't remember which one we wrote first, but was stamped right up there in the corner. And you open up, there's a letter from the team, all sorts of information. There's a, a collage of pictures of players and coaches. That's like gold. And when we figured out you could do it with one team, we wrote every team we could think of. We're writing letters day and night all over the NFL. And there's nothing more exciting when you're 11 years old than coming home from school and realizing there's another. In fact, in my parents' basement, this stack is still somewhere. I never threw it away of these letters. And, and it, was just, here's, it was just the thought. <laughs> this is how, and you know, if you've got 11-year-old boys, you know how this works. It's just the thought. That, that somewhere, Joe Montana might have, in the stadium, walked past the bin that the letter they just sent me was in. Man, that was dynamite stuff. And you know what it did? It emboldened us. So then we started, we didn't just write football teams, we began to write superstar football players. Personal letters in care of the stadium. And while not all of them wrote back, some of them did. In fact, for years in our room, we had uh, across the wall three pictures autographed. Uh, Some of these names will mean nothing to some of you, but they'll mean everything to others. There was Tony Dorsett. Yes, I wrote the Dallas Cowboys. I didn't say it was a good idea. I just said I did it. Marcus Allen, and the best of all, just a little bit higher than the rest, was Walter Payton. 
I was not, and they, and they did. There were autographed eight by 10, and we still have those in the basement of my parents' house somewhere too. Now, I don't know for sure if the players really signed it. Somebody did, that was very, very clear. But again, just the thought that these superstars who we idolized as 11-year-old boys might have actually signed it and sent it to me. That, I mean, that's just dynamite stuff. And then there's the experience, and you probably had this too as a kid, of actually getting an autograph yourself. He may play for the Cedar Rapids Colonels, or he may have played for the New York Giants, but to get an actual athlete's autograph and, and have him write it on a, a program or a hat or a ball or a glove was thrilling to us as kids. Never mind that in most cases they never even made eye contact, you know? They just sign it and hand it back to you. To us as kids, treasures like that were good as gold. Because I think about it, the one thing all of those kind of encounters had in common, writing the teams, writing the players, meeting a, a, a hero like that in person, here's what all three of those encounters had in common. That what meant the world to me and my brother was just everyday ordinary stuff to them. They gave everybody an autograph who asked for one. They, and we were just lit, handsome as we were at that age. We were just faces in a crowd <laughs> like everyone else. But what was Jesus' message here in verse 8? In verse 8, Jesus does not merely repeat what he said in verse 7 for emphasis. No, Jesus in verse 8 goes a step further by affirming that our Heavenly Father plays no favorites with his children, that we all have equal, personal, intimate access to him. For, look at verse 8, everyone... Everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and who knocks, it will be opened. Listen to me, not just grown-ups, not just mature Christians who didn't screw up all week long, not just pastors and missionaries and worship team leaders who, who sort of make church their, no. Everyone means what? Everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, I want you to, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ponder for a moment what that means. Everyone who knows Jesus, who asks, receives, who seeks, finds, and who knocks, the door will be opened. You know what that means if you know Jesus Christ here this morning? It means your name is known in heaven. Your name is known in heaven. It means when you pray, your voice is heard in heaven. It means your face is familiar to heaven. You are not just another name, face in the crowd. You are known by your heavenly Father. You are loved by your heavenly Father. And he is listening and responding when we pray. <laughs> and what's the secret? What's the dirty little secret? We're just ordinary people. We're just regular guys and regular gals, and yet we have a Father in heaven who loves to listen and to answer our prayers. We're nobody special as far as the world is concerned. And yet, when you and I pray, Jesus says, expect that God will give you an answer. So we need to pray. I once heard Pastor Al Toledo of the Chicago Tabernacle say, and he said, you know why? He said, because when I read my Bible, he said, I've noticed God loves to bless the weak and the average. God loves to bless his ordinary, at least as far as we're concerned, kids. 
And that's why the third thing Jesus says to us in this passage, the third parting word he gives us about prayer, he says, make prayer your first move, expect that God will answer, but in doing so, always, 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 always remember how the relationship works. Remember how this relationship works. You know, sometimes when you listen to people pray, and I don't mean this as a critique. Again, this isn't us thing, not a you or a certain people thing. But I've noticed that you can learn a lot what a person thinks about God and their relationship by listening to them pray. You just learn, listen to yourself pray. You'll learn a lot about what you really think about that relationship. And, 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 and there's all sorts of sort of, I mean, you know, not to be too absolute or, or too uh, heavy-handed in this, but I think there are sort of categories and, and, and sort of modes of prayer. Some of us, and this is the easiest thing to do when you're a new believer in Christ and maybe even been one for a while, is to be a list-based prayer. Basically, my approach to prayer is this. Lord, here's all the stuff I need you to take care of today. At work, at home, in my marriage, with the kids, at school, in the club, at the gym, and in the ball game tonight. I need you to take all care of all this stuff because I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life, and I just need you to get on board with it. I'm a list-based prayer. Here's my list, God. I'll bring it back to you again tomorrow. Others of us, it's easy to fall in, and, 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 and I guess the best word I can come up with is, is sort of, a, it's easy to fall into a habit of being a, a sort of a liturgy-based prayer. Now, liturgy isn't bad. Liturgy is simply there is an order and a process to worship how we relate to God. But a liturgy can become a habit and can eventually become an idol. If my attitude towards prayer is, you know, in order to pray and really pray well, it has to be at the right time, in the right place, with the right lighting, with the right coffee, with the right music in the background. Nobody is allowed to interrupt me. It has to last a certain amount of time, and i got to get all this stuff. And as long as I do that, then prayer is good. And if not, it, well, you know, I mean, it didn't really count. And that sounds silly, but we can fall into that habit rather than the relationship. It's easy, too, I've noticed, to, to sort of treat our, God, our relationship with God, our prayer relationship with God, primarily making our prayer sort of a lament-based sort of thing. And that's where we essentially come to God, and the entire focus is almost squarely upon our own personal unworthiness. Lord, I am such a terrible person. I get it wrong every day. Lord, I look at my life, and I'm ungrateful, and I'm impatient, and I'm unkind, and, and I'm short-tempered, and I don't read my Bible enough, and, and my mind wanders in church, and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And Lord, there's so much I need you to fix about me. I'm so broken. It's like Jesus came into your life and made it worse. <laughs> and, and I think we need to be careful. There's this whole sort of notion of, of celebrating as a badge of honor our brokenness as believers. We're all broken. We get it. Jesus came to heal and transform. Jesus came to heal. Let me say that again. And transform. And he knows we're supposed to give him that stuff and, and then grow and mature in him. And again, while I've, I've repeatedly tried to stress through this series, God really does want to know our sorrows and our heartaches and our hurts to cast our cares upon him. He wants to help us move toward maturity. He wants and he intends to meet our needs. What I've been saying and what I will say again is that is not, everybody say it's not, the sum total of what it means to pray. Simply tell him all about your sorrows and then do it again tomorrow. That's not the sum total of prayer, alone or together. 
Because Jesus' message here in verses 9, 10, 11 is, is that first and foremost and above all else, prayer is the expression of and communication within, not a list, a liturgy, or a lament-based relationship. Prayer is done in the context of a what? You know the L, a love-based relationship. Prayer is something we do in the context of a love-based relationship. How do I know that? Look at verse 9, and I promise we're almost done. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? What's Jesus saying? He's saying when you ask God for something precious, he's not going to hand you something worthless. Verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? In other words, when you ask God for something wholesome, he's not going to turn around and give you something fearsome. For if you then, verse 11, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus says this. He says, I know how you guys really are. He's saying to his disciples, he'd say the same thing to us. I know that you're sinful and perfect, and you get it right some of the time, and you get it wrong the other times, but here's what I know about you. You know how to take care of your people, your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends. You know what to do to take care of them. How much more do you think your father, who is perfect, holy, and has unlimited resources, knows how to take care of you? He does. And Jesus promises that he will. And while sometimes the gifts he gives us, the answers he gives us, they don't. We understand. They don't appear good in the moment. They, they appear to be unwelcome answers. The promise of verse 11 is that sooner or later, and it may not be till we get home, somehow we'll look back and say, God was what? Good. Faithful. Because he's my father and yours. That's just how the relationship works. He's your father in heaven and if you think about it, that last line of verse 11 really is, as, as Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests, the theme of the entire Bible, how much more does our Father in heaven know how to give good things to those who ask him? That's the story of the gospel. And it means two things, quickly. It means something to every person in the room this morning. It just means different things depending on who you are. First of all, it means that for some of you, you need to grapple with and you need to answer the question, is he my father in heaven? Not am I going to church and showing up and carrying a Bible. Do I know him? Have I repented of my sin? Have I called on Jesus as Savior? Have I, as, as, as the, God's word tells me in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so a little later on, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, you're in the family, you've got the relationship, he's your father. But if you haven't done that, he isn't. Do you know him? And if not, will you trust him today? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, come down and find me. We'll talk after church. And I or someone up here will explain it to you. It's the truest and greatest open invitation anyone's ever given. And for those of us who have done that, we do know he's our heavenly father. We have trusted Jesus Christ. Our invitation is, as today's big idea says, take every opportunity that you get to pray. Take every opportunity that you get to pray.
talk to your heavenly Father because becoming a house of prayer starts when we choose to become people who pray. Men, women, and young people alike. God gives us the invitation and he asks us to respond. Father, thank you that you call yourself our Father. Thank you that Jesus made a way for us not only to be saved and have eternity secure, but to have a living, breathing, dynamic, growing relationship with you each and every day. Father, we thank you for the invitation you extend to come to you, to ask you, to seek you, to worship you. And Father, I pray that through what we've studied over these past many weeks, it simply won't make us more informed with some memorable thoughts or quotes or whatever. Father, I pray that it will teach us, that through it you will teach us to pray. Not so that we can say we have a prayer program, not so we can present ourselves to the world as a house of prayer, but so that we can know you better in the days to come than we have in the days gone by. Father, we love you, and we do so because you first loved us. Father, help us leave here today knowing that you are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.